So here's the truth. Endings are extremely important. Whether it's the ending of a life, the ending of a career, the ending of a film, the ending of a novel, uh, the ending of the Super Bowl halftime show. I'm going to get the Broncos, are the Super Bowl champs, in at every chance I can. They won. Um, but the ending of the Super Bowl halftime show was the ending of a show that some people loved, some people hated. But the ending of it had Bruno Mars, uh, Beyonce had been part of the show, Bruno Mars and Coldplay on the piano playing loud and singing loud these lyrics. We are going to get it. We're going to get it together right now. We're going to get it, get it together somehow. So here's the ending of the show that they're meaning to point all of our attention to these words. We are going to get it together right now. And then it seems like they got confronted with how challenging that was. So they said, we're going to get it together somehow. Like, I'm not sure how, but we're going to get it together. And then across the whole entire stadium, these lights are there that said, believe in love. Without any definition of what that love is or what it looks like, and I don't think that's a misdirected statement, but we'd have to ask questions. But clearly in the midst of that, there's this sense within them that we've got to get it together right now. It's, it's that bad. We've got to get it together right now. Somehow we've got to do this. Well, the ending of the book of Judges isn't as quite as hopeful as lights in a stadium that say believe in love. In fact, the ending of the book of Judges is extremely dark. These last five chapters entail theft, greed, adultery, false worship, danger, broken families, violence, rape, murder, and lying. That said, as we get into these five chapters, I have to say this. This section of scripture is incredibly jolting. And I think many of us have done ourselves a massive disservice by trying to make the Bible more tame than it really is. One of the greatest accusations against Christianity is how Pollyanna it is. That you walk in and sing happy songs, you have plastic smiles, you don't live in the midst of real life. And yet many of us who are sitting in there that genuinely are following Jesus go, listen, I know the horrors of life. I know how hard life really is. Well, the Bible testifies to that all over its pages. And yet many times we tame it down. We're not going to this morning. And so this section of scripture is really jolting. It's been extraordinarily jolting to me personally. And I'm telling you, even if you're in this room and you don't believe that you're a skeptic in this room, this passage is very jolting and will jolt you. And if it doesn't jolt you, whether you're a skeptic or a believer, uh, something's wrong and it should. In all kinds of works, right, art, film, poetry, uh, even the works of Shakespeare, uh, the reality is there's certain points where you read about the horror of life and the tragedy of life, and for many of us, it can trigger emotions of things that have happened to us before. There's something you can watch in a film, or uh, there's something you could read in a book that literally brings up a point where you feel it in your body, or you smell it in your nose, or you hear sounds that aren't really there, you see sights from a past time. This passage is like that. It can be very triggering. So I just want to say uh, to those of you who are in here, if you have kids, um, I don't feel I have the flexibility to tame down this passage. So you may want to take notice of that. Secondly, if you're in here and you feel uncomfortable by this, people get up and walk out all the time. This is a big room. People have to go to the bathroom. Nobody will know. But if you feel uncomfortable with this, I give you full permission to leave in the midst of this. Um, the issue of why it would conjure up that type of emotion is exactly what the author of this book is trying to do. But we, when we see that, we have to then ask ourselves the question of how did we get here? 
Because clearly, even in the Super Bowl halftime show, there's a sense of something is massively amiss. It's a mess, not just a miss. It's an absolute mess. We got to get it together right now. We got to get it together somehow. How did we get to this point where it's that big of a mess? How did we get to a point where it's such a mess that what we're going to talk about from the Bible, I know will conjure up emotions in many of us that we may need to get up and leave, which again, let me say to you, I'm told you have the full freedom and should do that if so, but how did it get to the point where it's that big of a mess that some of us in here, many of us in here have experienced that type of horror in our lives that it literally comes about physically in our bodies? That is what the author of the book of Judges is trying to do in these last five chapters. In a very real sense, he's trying to resensitize the people of God to how horrific their lives are, how horrific their behavior is. And fundamentally, the word that the Bible would use is how horrific sin is. So if we ask ourselves the question, how did we get here in the book of Judges, or how did we get here in this room, or how did we get here to the point of where the Super Bowl sings uh, words, we got to get it together, it's for this reason. Look at this image on the screen. In, in the Bible, the Bible begins with God creating, and everything he creates is so good. I mean, so good to the point of you and I couldn't even comprehend it, because all we've lived in is a world in which we've been experienced the horrors of sin and therefore been desensitized and had a hardness of heart. But essentially, when God made the world, he made human beings to be in unity. See what I'm doing with my hands, like two hands fit together, right? Like people typically say hand and glove, but hand and hand fit even better and you can go tighter. So as tight as I could get my fingers together, God made us to be in union with him. God made human beings to be in harmony with him, right? In harmony with ourselves, in harmony with each other, all of the rest of the human race, and in harmony with the wider world. The reality of what sin did is it separated violently us from God. It separated us from ourselves. Sin alienates, separates us from each other, and then separates us from the wider creation. So the way you could think about it from the outside is kind of the physical, wider world, everything's hard. If I stopped right now and said, life is hard, can I get an amen? If you were honest, everybody in this room, save maybe those two and under, would go, amen. And truth be told, even babies that are screaming and crying when they may even come out of the womb are screaming and crying because it's like, I'm now coming into a place that's really hard, right? You'd all say, that's what the big one is, the one out there, everything's hard. The reality is our social relationships, you could talk about this as social, our relationships with each other are really hard. Can I get an amen? Amen, right? And then you go, even our life with ourselves, our own thoughts, how much we're not satisfied with who we are, how uncomfortable we are. This is when Adam and Eve get naked, realize they're naked, and they become self-absorbed. In all of that, if you go, what's the root? How did we get here? Is we're alienated from God. Sin is the word for the Bible in which we try to take autonomy onto ourselves. That was the temptation of Adam and Eve. They could be like God. I can rule my universe. The minute that autonomy of sin happens, I want you to see that is not just a spiritual thing. That is a thing that affects how we view ourselves, how we relate to others, and how we relate to the wider world. It is a comprehensive catastrophe. Let me say that again. Sin is a comprehensive catastrophe that affects real life. So even if you're in this room and you go, why is life so hard? Or you may even say it more colorfully. The scriptures would say life is so hard fundamentally because the world that was made to be in union with God because of sin, because of our desire for autonomy, separated us 
from the God who made the entire world. So therefore now everything is broken. That's a simple statement of how we got here. Now here's the verse, the theme verse over all the book of Judges that's used multiple times in these last five chapters. And I'm going to keep this verse on the screen because if there is a verse that the book of Judges is meant to land upon you and I and to sink within us, it's this verse. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is how the whole book ends, and it's used multiple times in this section. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The truth is there literally was no king. Israel functioned kind of like a confederacy, confederacy or the 13 colonies, right, that weren't totally united. There was no king meant there was no moral compass, but there literally wasn't a king, and there was no leaders that were fearing God and uniting them. This is the people of Israel, nation of Israel. In short form, the name for them was the people of God. you got to hear that. This is the people of God, right? But in those days, there was no king in Israel. They didn't serve God as king. They served themselves as king, and everyone did what was right in their own Eyes. Now, the story I'm about to tell you is going to show you that sin, when we don't serve God as king, when we don't submit to God as king, whoever we are in human life that even affects the people of God, it's catastrophic. And I, that is, I could not, I could use tons of words to say it more strongly, but we'll just start with one. It's catastrophic. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So let's get into the story. The story starts, my Bible says in chapter 17, with Micah and the Levite. The truth is it starts with Micah and his mom. Now, don't mistake Micah for the minor prophet of Micah. In simple terms, this is the bad Micah. Okay, so Micah sits there. The whole story starts with him going to his mom and going, hey, you know that money that you were wondering where it went? I took it. So it starts with theft. He goes, but in the end, I want to give it back to you. And then his mom makes this statement where she says, you know what, Micah? We're going to dedicate it to the Lord. You got to hear this. The phrase she uses is Yahweh. We are going to dedicate it to the one true God. So, Micah, the way we're going to dedicate it to the one true God is by doing this. Give it to me. I'm going to give it to a silversmith, and we're going to make for ourselves, you can make for yourself, a graven molten image. Now, You don't have to be a biblical scholar to hear the word graven image and go, I think I've seen that before at one time, like outside of federal buildings and different things. I think that's in the cliff note version of the the Israelite law, which is the Ten Commandments that says don't do that. Well, they're saying we're going to worship the one true God and dedicate to him graven images that we bow down and worship. We're going to serve the one true God by serving other gods. She says, let's do that. And then that section ends in verse 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now along comes a Levite, a religious leader, who comes upon the house of Micah. And Micah goes, who are you? He says, I'm from Bethlehem. I'm a Levite. And Micah goes, that's it. You come into my house. I'm going to hire you to be my priest unto the Lord. And you can navigate and lead us in idol worship. He walks into the house. There's idols all over the place that are being bowed down and being worshipped. And now a Israelite leader goes, 
yeah, this seems like a good opportunity. This is a great move for my career path. So now I'm going to take my job of worshiping the one true God and serve this man's house of idolatry. And in the end, Micah goes, this is great. And now he says this, the Lord, Yahweh, the one true God, will bless us because I have a priest. I have a Levite to be the priest over this, here's a simple word, cult. And Micah, look at verse 12, ordained the Levite. I don't know where Micah got his credentials to ordain the Levite, but, and the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, now I know that the Lord, Yahweh, will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. So, at this moment, there's something we've got to understand. There is something happening inside the nation of Israel where they're beginning to blend together idol worship of Canaan with their own worship of the one true God. And they have an outward appearance and language that says, we serve God, the one true God, Yahweh. They're still reciting the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. All the while, they are serving many gods, not one God. They're serving many gods that aren't the real God. They're serving many gods that, in fact, aren't gods at all. Now, stop for a minute. And let me start at a place where all of you can go, oh, yeah. So last night, Hillary Clinton, because she's an American and because America is a Christian country, shows up at the Stellar Gospel Awards, surprises everybody and stands in front and says, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Now, I'm not judging Hillary Clinton's heart, but Donald Trump does the very same thing, stands up, tries to quote the Bible, butchers it like crazy, lives a life that isn't even close to in conformity with the God that he's proclaiming, and we have a country that we have to do it in, and we say, the Lord, in God we trust. Now, if you read this verse and understand these are the people of God, the nation of Israel, which is different than the United States, God set this up to be an, a nation under his lordship, very, very directly for a specific person, purpose. We're not even in the United States. They blend these things to think that you and I could not, or our nation, or our churches, could not blend the idolatry of the United States of America with the God of the Bible, with Jesus Christ. If you don't think that can happen, you're a fool. And it happens all the time with many individuals sitting in this room, with churches, with our churches, redemption churches, and with our entire country. And this is a massive warning. You don't view the Bible through your American lens. You don't view the Bible through your political lens. If the Bible doesn't allow you to evaluate all of your life, individually, familially, as sta a state, as an organization that you're a part of, if you as a Christian, first and foremost, aren't looking at the world through God and Jesus Christ and the scriptures that he gave us, I promise you, you have no right to look at Micah and his mother and go, oh my gosh, because we're in the very same place. And here's what the Bible begins to show. It's a catastrophic place, and it isn't a minor error. It is no minor error. So now, chapter 18 begins with the tribe of Dan coming on and coming upon 
the house of Micah. The reason that they do is they're looking for a land for them to land in. Now, the tribe of Dan is one of the tribes in the nation of Israel. They come upon Micah's house. They're looking for a land. They hear this priest talk. They go, where are you from? He's like, well, I'm from Bethlehem. I'm a Levite. And they're like, why are you here? They go, they look at this land called Laish. They look at it. They're like, this is unbelievable. These are, hear these words, peaceful people prosperous people, people who are living in harmony and flourishing around them, they go back and they go, that's the land we're going to take. They show back up at Micah's house. They say to the Levite, you need to come with us. Would you rather be a priest of one man's house or of an entire tribe? Now, the priest, who's already been bought once, goes, man, I'm moving up the career ladder. This is way better Right? And he goes, but along the way, they look around and they go, look at all of these graven images they have. A tribe of the nation of Israel. Not just a family now. Now it's a tribe of the nation of Israel. They go, take all of images. Take all of the moltenly graved images. Bring it along. Bring the priest along. And they take off from Micah's house, having stole the graven images, which, just so you know, they should have never taken it all. And they buy a priest, and a priest that can be bought goes with them. So now they're cruising out. Micah comes to him and goes, what in the world's going on? You just took my stuff, my gods, and you took the priest. And they go, you better not talk too loudly or we will destroy you. He looks at him. He's like, they're pretty strong. He leaves. They continue on in the midst of the whole process. In this passage of chapter 18 ends with them walking into the city of Laish and destroying a peaceful, prosperous people. Because they aren't concerned about them. How's that loving your neighbor as yourself thing going? They aren't concerned about them. They destroy them. And then in the end, take over the land. And the whole chapter ends saying this. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, hear this. Son of Moses and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of captivity of the land. The sons of Moses, the direct lineage of Moses, the one who received the law, the one who spoke about the purity of God's people, his sons, grandsons, are the priests leading this segment of the nation of Israel in idol worship, which never results just in spiritual worship, but in the murdering of a peaceful and prosperous people. And then it says, so they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. We're going to make God in our image. We're not going to go to where the worshiping tent is. We're going to worship here. Okay, let me just stop again, slow down and go. This is the people of God. The word is called syncretism. Syncretism is a word that basically says, I'll create a God of my own making. A little bit of this, a little bit of this, a little bit of this, a little bit of this. Appoints itself as an authority, designs worship around it, and worship will always, what you worship will always lead to how you behave. It's never just private worship. Well, your spiritual life's your private thing. Never. Your worship, whatever it is you're worshiping, your career, your family, your progress, your stuff, or a God that you say you're serving, what you worship will always define how you behave. So Judges 17 and 18 is the making of their own gods, which leads to chapters 19 and 21, which is the destruction, the destroying of their own people. Now let me just stop here for a minute and say, this is the point where it gets sickening dark. Chapter 19, in those days when there was no king in Israel, hear it again, no king in Israel, 
They aren't serving Yahweh as king, and there is no king unifying them around any moral compass. A certain Levite leader was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judea. So he's sojourning, this religious leader. He takes for himself a woman. Now, at this point, there's certain points of the Bible that we have to slow down. We don't have time to do it all now. But for instance, you've got to go, what is it like for a man to take a concubine? Immediately think about what does the concubine feel like? If I'm her father, what do I feel like? A Levite taking a concubine. In the midst of this scene, the concubine commits adultery. She goes with another man. Then the Levite finds out his concubine's been with another man. She finds out that he found out, and she runs for dad, right? I'm going to run to the arms of dad. She goes back down to Bethlehem. The Levite says, I'm going to get her. He goes down to the father's house. The father opens the door and goes, I am so glad you're here. Come in. Eat with us. Dine with us. And he made sure there was a bunch of liquor there. Right? So he goes in, they start dining, he gets the Levite drunk, the Levite goes to bed, um, wakes up hungover, wakes up late, wakes up hungover, he's not feeling very good, we gotta go, the dad's like, you can't go now, if you go now, it's too late in the day, you won't end up at your destination, it'll get dangerous, stay again, gets him drunk again, and it goes on night by night. Finally, one day, he wakes up hungover, and he's like, that, that's enough, takes his concubine with him, and moves away at that point, right, goes off, Heads up and comes upon, not his destination, but a place now it's getting dark. He's got to land. It's in this area called Gibeah. He shows up in Gibeah, looks for hospitality, can't find it, which means Gibeah is not living up to the hospitality laws that the nation of Israel had by design from God. They're not living up to it, but there's a sojourner in the land who's also from an area, sees him and goes, come in and stay with me. So now the man walks in with his concubine into a home of a man who's opened himself up. And the scene begins that you read it, and if you've read your Bible before, you're like, gosh, I feel like I've read this before. It sounds a lot like Genesis 19 of Sodom. That These men from Gibeah come out. Remember, Gibeah is in the nation of Israel. These are Israelites. They come in, it says they start throwing themselves at the door, and they're like, bring the man whom you're showing hospitality to out so that we can have sex with him. Now, you've got to understand something. This wasn't about gratification. This was about humiliation. What they were doing at this point was trying to humiliate this man to say, don't come to our neighborhood again. And the way they were going to humiliate him was to bring him out and rape him, multiple men raping a man. The man that's showing hospitality in his home looks at them and he goes, you cannot do such a heinous thing. This is absolutely insane. It's ridiculous. It's vile, verse 24. So he goes, it's vile. You can't do this. So therefore... Watch this. Take my virgin daughter. You're like, okay, that is vile, but now you're offering him your daughter? And then he's like, and the concubine. And they keep beating on the house. So what the Levite does is he looks and he probably goes, you cheated on me already. He grabs the concubine, his, con his concubine, and he throws her outside the door to this mob of men. They shut the door. The mob of men are there. Now stop a minute again and be realistic. And I'm not trying to be gruesome here, but if you don't do this, you're not getting what the author's doing. There are sounds that are horrific. I guarantee there continues to be incredible beating on the door, this time likely not from the men, but from the concubine trying to get in back into a place of safety. What it says at that point is that this woman is raped by multiple men the whole entire night. 
Then as dawn arises, which is very interesting, this dark, dark scene, when light begins to dawn, they take the woman and they throw her at the doorstep. And it says her, lay, her hands lay on the threshold of the door. Now morning comes, the Levite opens the door and he looks down and he goes, get up, let's go. She doesn't get up. Get up, let's go. She doesn't get up. Get up, let's go. Finally, he realizes she's dead. So he picks her up, puts her on the donkey, and they head out. Now, obviously, somewhere in his journey, he's going, how did we get here? Like, what on God's green earth is going on? Right? Because it's not like he was surprised. He heard everything that was happening there. And not just he heard it. He threw her out. So at this point, he's like, what is going on? Our whole nation of Israel is in a horrific condition. So here's what he decides to do. He decides to cut the woman apart. He cuts her limb by limb and sends some of her body parts to one tribe, some to another tribe, to where all the 12 tribes of Israel receive a package with human body parts in it. They get the human body parts, and it says at that point, this is what they say at the end of verse 19. And all who saw it, the body parts, the package of body parts, such a thing, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. And then they say this, consider it, take counsel, and speak. In short, something's got to be done. This is our nation. We are the people of God. Look, consider this. Take counsel. We've got to talk to each other. And we have to speak. We have to do something. Right? So you're like, gosh, yes. Yes, we do. Yes, you do. Now, let me just stop here again and remind you. What we worship will always affect our behavior. When we go, how did we get here? This is a little moment. How did we get here? Well, you removed as God is king. There was no king in Israel. You removed Yahweh as king, and therefore the only result is to do what's right in your own eyes. Every man, every woman begins to do what is right in their own eyes. Let me tell you one thing that happens when every person does what's right in their own eyes. The whole loving your neighbor as yourself thing doesn't not just happen. The absolute reverse happens. I'm focused on myself. If I only do what's right in my own eyes, it's all about me, even if it's at cost to you. And all of a sudden, people begin to really realize when limbs show up at their doorstep that Cain's statement after he killed his brother Abel and God said, where's your brother? And he said, am I my brother's keeper? Which truth be told, folks, we're saying all the time in our country, are we really our brother's keeper? We gotta think about us. And here's what God says when he's totally silent to Cain. Am I my brother's keeper? He's like, it's really come to that point? And then the whole traction of sin shows up on your doorstep in dead limbs and says, yes, you're your brother's keeper. You know who else gets absolutely mauled in societies where every man does what's right in his own eyes? Women. Women get absolutely destroyed. And many times in the church get destroyed under the guise of that which is biblical. So now they go, consider it, take counsel, speak out, what do we do? And these 11 tribes of Israel get together, and it says they come together as one. First time they've been unified in a really long time, they come together as one, and they go, we've got to go back to Gibeah where this happened and absolutely decimate this place. Again, all the Americans are like, yeah, 
right? Decimate them. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to go back and we're going to decimate these people. So they show up. Gibeah is in the tribe of Benjamin, right? They're in the tribe of Benjamin. So they show up and the Benjamites come out and they're like, what's the deal? And they're like, you got a package as well. This is horrific. Consider it. Take counsel and speak. Benjamin goes, no way. So now they begin to destroy each other. A war ensues inside of Israel. And these other tribes go up against Benjamin, and Benjamin destroys them the first time. Thousands upon thousands of men are destroyed. So again, stop for a minute and just think about the crisis we have with veterans right now with mental illness and PTSD. And don't just read these passages like, there's war, there it is again, right? Live into it, understand it, know what's going on. Thousands of men of Israel are destroyed. They go, God, what are you doing? Should we not go again? And they hear God saying, go again. So they go up and they go again. They get destroyed again by the tribe of Benjamin. Only the third time do they then decimate Benjamin. So stop again and go, that means thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of men, which then again means women and children, they weren't counted, are destroyed. Now what happens when we lose family members? One family member over what we would call natural causes, though the Bible would say sin's never natural, over natural causes, what it does to our hearts. Now imagine communities that have lost thousands upon thousands of fathers, brothers, mothers, and sisters. So now they destroy Benjamin. Well, in the midst of their destruction of Benjamin, 600 Benjamites run up into the mountains and hide, and they're there for months. During this time, now that the rest of the nation of Israel, these 11 tribes, sit there and they begin to weep and they're like, one of our brothers is gone. Not literal brothers, but whole entire tribe, right? There were 12 tribes of Israel because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. The 12 tribes of Israel, they're like, one's entirely gone. We're no longer 12 tribes, we're 11. Well, somebody goes, hey, by the way, there's 600 men left who escaped and are living in the mountains. So they're like, God's redeeming it. There's 600 men. But the only way we're going to rebuild the tribe of Benjamin is with women. And they don't have women to marry or be with, to sleep with, to have children. And we vowed, because they vowed, we would never give any of our daughters in marriage to the Benjamites because of how horrific they were. They're like, we made a, a vow to God. We can't take away the vow. So they go, well, is there anybody else out there that didn't come with us to do this fight? They're like, yeah, there is this other tribe. So they go to that tribe, kill every man, consider it, take counsel, speak out. You're like, yes, do it right. They go and pillage an entire place, create war. Now they go, there's not enough women to go. So now they go into this community. They kill every man and every woman who's ever slept with a man, and they only keep alive 400 virgins. So now stop for a minute. 400 virgins, likely young women, are now going, we're now being given to men we've never known while we've just lost our mothers, our sisters, our brothers, and our fathers. Folks, imagine the trauma. Imagine the horror in their gut. Imagine the bloodshed. What is this doing to future generations? What is this doing to people, not just to those who've been killed or had their family members killed, what's it doing to those who are doing the killing? So now they go, we have 400 versions, but how many men were there that they were going to line them up with? 600. We're missing 200. What do we do now? They go, oh, well, it's Shiloh. They're having a festival. 
And when Shiloh has its festivals, its young women go outside the town and do a dance. So let's take those 200 men, hide them in the woods, and when these women come out, they're going to take them for themselves. I mean, folks, this is the people of God, and it's Boko Haram. On it, it's Boko Haram. They're going and abducting women. The girls will never forget. The abducted girls, they take them for themselves. Now they've got 600 and 600. And the way the whole book ends is them going 600 and 600, land in the land of Benjamin. And then it says this at the end of verse, of chapter 21. And the people of Benjamin did so, took their wives according to their number from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family, and they went out from there, every man to his own inheritance. So they all just left, and they rebuilt the tribe of Benjamin. And you're like, wait a minute, what? Like what? And then the whole book ends. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now folks, I... If endings are important, that's dark. Like, there is no way. Now, here's something you got to realize. Remember all the way back to chapter 19, this woman getting raped and pillaged. And I said, this will remind you of Genesis 19, Sodom. Here's what's crazy. Genesis 19, you compare it to Judges 19, and you're like, these are like the same thing. Here's the difference. Genesis 19 is a pagan place. Judges 19 is the people of God. I mean, in essence, we go, this is happening in the church. <laughs> and here's what's so crazy about this, is if you read this and go, man, weren't those violent times? And you don't understand our own false worship right now that leads to hideous behavior. I mean, time and time again now, you're reading stories about children being molested in children's ministries, leaders doing horrific things inside Christian churches, marriages being blown apart under the guise of it's because of God, communities and churches standing up on stage, an American flag right next to a cross to justify injustice. Folks, I'm telling you, if you don't think this is right inside our backyard, you're out of your mind. And if you think it doesn't matter, just wait, because it'll show up on our doorstep. And God will be saying, yes, you are your brother's keeper. This was meant to sensitize the nation of Israel to the horrors of sin. To sensitize the nation of Israel to the reality of this is what happens when we make a God of our own making. To sensitize and drive the nation of Israel back to the word of God. To go, let me remind you of what it means to be God's people. For them to then go, oh my God, if we're going to consider it, take counsel and speak it better not be because we're doing something that's right in our own eyes when sin has distorted our eyes and our behavior. It better be because of the Bible. Now, there's no way at this point you don't stop and go, this are the people that are supposed to represent God to the world? <laughs> like, why doesn't God just do away with them? I just, I want to ask that question to you guys right now. And honestly, I'm going to give you a few seconds, just stew upon this. Why at this point wouldn't God just say, I am done with this? 
Because if you're the people of God, you're representing my name in a horrific fashion. So now the world is viewing me through your behavior. Why doesn't God just do away with them? I mean, let's be honest. If you were God, you would. I would. Like, things get too hard. Get out of here. I'm out of here, right? Start over. Do something, but get rid of this. Why did God not do that? In that very section, when we talked about the four alienations of sin, at the moment God says this has affected you spiritually, you've been, you're hiding now from the God you were made for. You're now acknowledging that you're naked and you're becoming insecure. You're now fighting amongst each other that ends up leading to your son killing your other son. And it's going to affect the whole way you operate in the world to go life's hard and you're not going to chuckle afterwards, you're going to cry. Right at the end of that, God looks at the enemy who sowed the seed of the lie and he said, listen, you think you've won. And horror is going to come from the work that they've believed because they believe the bad word you've given them rather than the good word I've given them. You think you've won, but one will come from this woman's seed whom you will only bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. So here, there's, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Well, just after this, this begins to lead a, to a king who does come to Israel. That the whole Old Testament thinks is the final fulfillment. This man of David, who was a man after God's own heart. And yet, as you read the story of David, you go, even he murders men so that his own glands, doing what's right in his own, what he feels so that he can sleep with this man's wife of Bathsheba. So you sit there and go, well, this is not the king. But then the New Testament comes, and it says, from the line of David came one whose name was Jesus, the king. A king has been born, who the Bible says is not just a king, but he's the way, the truth, the life, the unifying moral compass. He's God, the Bible says. That this whole time when all of our people have been going, we're serving God and yet only living for our own glands at destruction to each other and destruction to ourselves, God goes, I and I won't lose. What I promise to redeem, I will redeem, and God will not stop coming after the world that he made. Folks, the love of God, when the Super Bowl says, believe in love, if that love is not ultimately defined by what 1 John says, God is love, and you don't understand that this love is not a Pollyanna, oh yes, love, it's a bloody love. It's a love that is coming into a world that dismembers women. It's a love that's coming into a world that words are literally destroying families. That moving away and walking away from pain and anguish, it is moving into the fire of the foster care system. It's moving into a world, to the fire of those who don't know the God they were made for. It's moving into a world in which babies are killed for the conveniences of women. Or babies are killed because women are so poor they don't know what else to do because we have not said we are our brother's keeper as a society, as a world. It's moving into a world that is dealing with people with deep, deep mental illnesses. 
And in the end, all of the bloodshed that's happened through war, all of the bloodshed and bruises that have happened through abuse, all of the bloodshed that's happened through sexual abuse, all of the horrors that have happened by fathers not being fathers, by the hearts of children being turned away from their fathers, he's going, no, I'm coming back to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the children to their parents, to reunite brother to brother, ultimately by reuniting you to God. And love is a bloody love found in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. Folks, let me just tell you this. The Bible is not tame, and it's no joke. This is real stuff, real stuff that affects all of us as individuals, that affects all of us as families, that affects all of us as communities, that clearly right now people are singing in the Super Bowl going, we got to get it together, and God's going, there's one way you get it together. And Jesus is speaking in his bloody love, I am the way. I am the truth and I am the life. No one will come to the Father. No one will be reunited back to the center to fix this but through Christ. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and thank you for your grace and mercy to us. Thank you for your bloody, costly love that's the only thing that could fix a catastrophic, bloody world. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.